welcome to the Genre Wars Book Podcast, which exists to help you read wider and find great new books where you didn't expect them. We chat about the best stories from people's favorite genres with the authors who write them. I'm your host, Tim Hawken, and today I'll be talking Uplit with Julieta Henderson. Julieta has been a professional writer for over 25 years, with her debut fiction novel, The Funny Thing About Norman Foreman, coming out today. Julieta's writing makes you laugh, then cry, then laugh again on the same page, making you look like a crazy person if you're reading her book on the train. Julieta, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim, and thank you for that introduction because that made me laugh as well. <laughs> that's all I've ever wanted is to make people cry and laugh at the same time, so thank you. Oh, you've and you really have done that with this book. It's such a a wonderful book, and um, and like you say, a lot of emotions, but ultimately uplifting. And I have to say too, when um, when your Australian publisher Penguin reached out um, and said, "Would would I like to talk to you about Uplit?" I was like, I didn't even know what Uplit was. And as a book nerd, I was kind of like, I don't know what. So I you know Googled it away, and and all of a sudden, a, a handful of my favourite books ever kind of popped up like um a man a man called uber and um the rosie project and um eleanor oliphant's completely fine and i was like oh okay i kind of i'm getting a sense for what this is but um how would how would you describe uh, uplit and um just for the listeners what what is the genre and and what does it kind of set out to do well, to be perfectly honest, I'd never heard the term myself until I was bestowed with the title <laughs> as the genre for my book. And I kind of didn't, I'd, when I was writing, I really didn't know what I was writing. Um, my aim was to write, I, I can't remember who said it, but somebody famous, some some great author once said, write, just sit there and write the book that only you could write. And so that's that's what came out of me. And because, because I'm generally, I think, I am a very optimistic and happy person, but, um, you know, the main thing I think that gets me through life, and I think the thing I get out of books, the way I, I, I read all genres, but the books that I tend to enjoy the most are the ones that have, you know, it might be corny or it might be cliched, but to me I really look for hope in a book because I mm. want to read a book and I want to know that, um, you know, I don't need a happy ending or anything like that, but I want to know that there's some little kernel of hope in there that that life's fine and we're all, you know, kicking along and trying to do our best and, and you know. So when I was told after I got my book deal and I was working with my agent and and they everyone was calling it um, book club and I, mm. I was almost, I almost felt not offended, but I almost felt a little bit misunderstood. I was like, oh, because I've never been in a book club, to be honest with you, but I, but a book club just reminded me of a lot of sort of very, you know, just people sitting around and talking about a book and not being very engaged and everything. And then, or being engaged but not being, I don't even know how to put this. <laughs> it, it just seemed to me that book, book club was not, it was not the way I read and it was not the sort of book I wanted to write. So mm. I was a little bit by that. But then within a very short time, I mean, people still are calling it book club and I understand that now and I've been put straight in no uncertain terms that how dare you be offended. That's actually a really, really nice little box to be put in. So mm. I'm okay in that box now. But then um, once I got the publishing deal after um, then, that was when I first heard the term uplit. And although I'd never heard of it before, the minute, I, I mean, I just I just took the word as it was. It's like sort of what's on the tin and I was like, 
oh, wow, that's a really good term. And I thought, yeah, wow, that is what I really like reading as well. And so I'm quite happy. In fact, I'm delighted to be, and as you say, that, you know, the people that, that they're com- not comparing me to, but that are in the same genre as me in Uplift are people I love and have read always and continue to read and feel I feel that is my little my little spot in there with with books like that that do make you I mean I always want to make people think I don't want to mm. be too you know I don't like to be one of the words I used to um, my editor was oh, I feel like when when I first was people were first talking about it and I went in and met all the publishing people in in the UK this was and the feedback I was getting Again, and they were like, "Oh, we love it! It's this, it's that, it's so wonderful, it's so heartwarming, and all this." And I and I said to my editor, "I feel like everyone's feeling that it's really bouncy, and that's not the sort of person I feel like. I don't feel bouncy." And she said, "But it is bouncy because bouncy doesn't mean that it's fluffy or anything like that. It just means that it takes you here and it takes you there, and it's and you know, and you, you go on this ride along, and hopefully." you know, you've read it so you know the ending and I think you can tell from even the back cut, you know it's going to be a happy ending and, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm okay about that. There's no big secret that there's going to be some kind of a happy ending at the end of Norman's story because that would be too cruel otherwise. Yeah, well, certainly <laughs> a, um, it's a sad, sad beginning to a, to a beautiful ending. And, um, but, I, you know, I think like you say, I heard the word uplit and I was like, some kind of marketing genius has come up with this yeah. word because it is, it's like really uplifting literature. And it's not to say that it's, so to me, like when you dig into the term, yes, it's uplifting, but also it has this kind of literary merit built into it as well um and it's not that it's it's fluffy bunnies it's it takes you through the whole kind of emotional roller coaster from start to finish um so yeah i mean i was just going to say i think it's a good alternative as well to the poor old misconstrued term of chiclet which everyone is you know people people are so either off put by that. I mean, I wouldn't care if I was called chiclet. I don't think that it is, but I actually wouldn't mind that myself. But I, I know a lot of people find that a really negative connotation. And I think uplit is it because, you know, and women's fiction is an all commercial fiction to me as well. I feel like that's, I fall into that genre as well. Um, genres always, always, here I am on a podcast called Genre Wars. Genre is something that's always it flummoxed me. It's just like, I don't know who I am. <laughs> Someone yeah, well, tell me. I, and I do need people to tell me. <laughs> and that's part of part of the reason why I started it, because I was a bit baffled as well. And the first um the first episode I did was with Brooke Davis, who, funnily enough, you could term um, her book Lost and Found, which is done brilliantly as uplit. It's it explores grief, but in a really quirky and funny way. And we were trying to to pin down literary fiction and we we kind of, I won't say we got nowhere, but we certainly didn't come to a conclusion at the end. And so it was kind of like, oh, is it this, is it that? And so, and often books will fit in multiple genres. It's not that they fit in yeah. a nice, tidy little package. And like you say, um, book club, book club can kind of mean anything. It's just a, a book that book clubs will like. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, and it's, it, most authors who I speak to are uncomfortable with being put into uh, that neat and tidy box because they're like, yeah, but there's so you know there's so much more to it. And yeah. I want 
listeners to understand that too. It's like just because something sci-fi or just because something thriller doesn't mean that there's not something in there for you if you're not normally the reader of that type of genre. Exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. And I'm a person, only recently, I've read my first crime novel only about three years ago and I'm in my 50s because I was very much, um, I think, before I before I started writing as um, seriously, writing a book seriously, I've always written for my work, but before I joined in with a group of writers, and I'm, I've never been a group person, as in I've never been in a writer's club, I've never been in a book club, things like that, but it wasn't until I was in this writer's, well, it wasn't even a writer's club, it was um, I, I did a... Uh, a three-month novel writing course with Curtis Brown Creative in London, and it wasn't until then that I had, I think, well, there was 13 people. And it that was that was maybe five years ago now. And that's the first time I'd ever critiqued someone else's work or had mine critiqued. And in that group, it was the most diverse, I mean, it was obviously just a cross-section of people who were, you know, getting serious about writing a novel. But in that group, the things I read that I would never read, like dystopian, I would never, I would walk past that on a shelf or, you know, on, you know, in Amazon or whatever. And I read this girl, and unfortunately, she hasn't been published yet, whereas quite a lot of the others had, but her book was brilliant. And I was like, oh, is this what dystopian fiction is? It's like, oh, well, I actually really love it. And same with crime. I had literally never read a crime book and I don't watch, you know, NCIS or anything like So maybe I should start because I'd probably like that too. But crime is not something that's really interested me. But because two of my um, classmates in there were, or three actually, were writing crime and thrillers, I got to read them. And I'm like, oh, wow, these are really great. And it wasn't until then that I really, you know, at quite a quite an older age that I really branched out and started reading other genres than what I thought. I, I don't think I thought I was reading a genre before that. I just was reading what I, you know, judging a book by its cover, which I do constantly and I think everyone does. And <laughs> they're lying. <laughs> But um, yeah, I, th- I think, and I've ever since then, I've my horizons have been so broadened, and it's like, I mean, this week I'm reading something that I never thought I would read, which is a Sophie Kinsella, which is you know proper, very successful chick lit. Like she's probably the most, you know, she's the shopaholic mm. lady, and she does all those books on, uh, and it's it's. I just, it's so not, but I've just always, I found it in a little, one of the little free libraries, you know, the little houses that people put outside their own houses and there's a free, there's free books in mm. there you can exchange and stuff. And I saw it, I thought, oh, I'll try and read this. And it's brilliant. It's like, it's so not my cup of tea. And I read it in about <laughs> five hours, but I can see it's so compelling. It's, it's, and I can see why it's successful and I can see why people love it. And so I think it's really important to, to, not be like me to to read outside what genres you might um, you might think that you like because yeah. there's a lot of surprises. <laughs> well, absolutely, there are those surprises, and it's it's those books that defy genre, and and it's just great writing and great characters, and there's things that are, as you say, compelling about that. And um, like Chicklet's a great example where it's I'm I'm a forty year old man. I don't really like I don't have this burning desire to pick up chitlick, chit, chit, chitlet, but I know that there's going to be amazing books in there 
once that <laughs> once I finally do. So I'll um I should actually do a, do an episode on on chiclet at some point. I was just going to say, I think too that for uh, I know not everyone that listens to this podcast is a writer, but uh, for readers as well. But but especially for writers, I think it's really interesting to read outside your genre, and you're not necessarily looking at the the subject or the topic or the themes or anything like that. But you're looking at the structure of what, of how different people and and every different genre, right? You know, there's there's certain sort of dedicated structure. Yeah. But um, I think it's really interesting to read outside your genre and you will, well, for me anyway, I've, I've sort of noticed so many different structural things uh, about other genres that I wouldn't have considered reading. Like, you know, crime, of course, you know, you've got to build, there's always got to be that basic, you know, narrative structure. But, I, I, yeah, I find that really interesting just, just seeing what everyone's up to. Mm-hmm. And so on that, um, in terms of your journey as a writer, um, you mentioned you're in your 50s now and this is your debut fiction book, but you have been writing for, for a very long time. Can we get a, a like a mini biography of Julieta? Like where did you grow up? You, I, I, you grew up in northern Queensland um, with a, a family of book lovers, but tell us a little bit more about the books that you loved and, and how you came up to being a, a professional wordslinger. So, yes, I grew up in a place called Karanda, which is in North Queensland. And, you know, my parents were the original hippies from Sydney and we travelled up in a combi and when I was three weeks old. We lived with no walls and no bathrooms and things like that. So it was, you know, it was a great, it was a great sort of little upbringing there. And I stayed there until sort of my teenage years. But my mum's a teacher and my dad's very much a reader and a philosopher sort of thing. So we always had, you know, very inappropriate for not inappropriate as in rude or anything like that, but I mean inappropriately aged books. I would, I would, you know, I was, it sounds really precocious and it was precocious in the, in the true sense of the word that I was, I read things like um, Pride and Prejudice and Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. I, because we had a set, I remember there was, my mum had the Reader's Digest set of these volumes and I read all those books when I was sort of eight and they all stayed in my head and we were always sort of, our whole family sort of been storytellers and my mum's a teacher and everything like that. But we were so encouraged. We didn't have a TV and I think that's the best thing. Um, I don't have children, but I know if I'd had them, they would never have had a TV. <laughs> but, but we didn't have a TV ever. I mean, I didn't did not get a TV until I left home. And as a consequence, we, both my sister and I, read really widely as, as we were young and, and it was just a, we grew up with books like, um, you know, The Hobbit. That's one of the first ones I can remember reading and all the, and, and the other, The Lord of the Rings. And, and to this day, I know it's sacrilege, but to this day I've never seen any of the, the films of The Lord of the Rings because the books were all so special to me that I just thought, mm, I don't know. And I, to this day, never watched them. I know I'm missing out. But, but um, and much the same with, with books. Other books we grew up with were um, the Narnia series and things like that. That I have seen the movie of. And, um, you know, it was just, it was a very, very much a, a booky upbringing. And so reading and writing have always come very naturally to me. And I've always written and I, you know, wrote reams and reams of poetry and silly stuff. And when, when we were kids and stuff, and my sister and I, I think that's in my bio that's on, the, on my book, um, we, we used to make little magazines and palm them off to the neighbourhood kids and things like that. We'd write the little stories in them and stuff. So it's always been a natural thing for me to, to write and I, I've always enjoyed it. 
And so then um, I did, I mean, I had several stints as, as various other things, but I eventually came to writing as a, as a profession um, and I worked for a landscape photographer who had his own publishing business. And so I wrote, sort of ghost wrote all his books and things like that. And then I lived overseas in London for a long time and I've just, since then, I've worked, I've managed to be very lucky and sort of carve out a writing, I wouldn't say it was a career, it was more of a job because the the, word, the, the, the writing that I do professionally is, it's definitely, you know, it's quite, you know, mundane sort of things and I do a lot of copywriting for real estate and things like that and also marketing and, you know, what they're calling content now where there's a lot of everyone wants content and I work for a marketing company in London, which I have done for a long time and, you know, people's copy for their website and things like that. So I do lots of things like that and that's always, um, that's something that I've done for for many years and it, it, it does sound funny it's, and I'm going to have to get used to it, but when I, I still, I know this is my debut novel because that's what it is. It's the first one that I've ever published. But like every other writer, I have a thousand novels on my hard drive or in my drawer and things like that, you know. It, so it doesn't, it never, ever felt like my first one to me, but it um, it felt like my best one. So that's good. Mm. <laughs> and obviously what. <laughs> but, um, but I think... I went on many, you know, for many years I I wanted to write a book, you know, and I think that's the same. That's, that's true of a lot of writers. You, it's a very arbitrary thing. Oh, I want to write a book. I want to write a book. Well, you actually have to write a book if you want to write a book. And I spent a lot of years going off to, um, because I was very lucky with my work, I could do it anywhere and I was on contract or freelance and I'd go and spend, many times I've spent three months in Paris, you know, living the writer's dream in, a, in an attic and, you know, and in Italy and places like that. But looking back on it now, I spent more time drinking coffee and walking around looking at shops <laughs> than I did. <laughs> but, you know, but um, and actually Norman was, um, this book was born on, you know, another little, journey that I had which was to spend three months in Cornwall and I loved it so much that actually made it into the book that's where that's where this book started and that's where mm. the journey in the book starts which is you know kind of poetic it, it wasn't deliberately done that but done like that but then I was like actually yeah they can start off down here so um and so yeah I, I it is my debut but I have many many more very bad I'm sure I'm too terrified to go back and look at most of it but um you know I, I hope it's the first of many I've, I'm certainly working hard on that being the case yeah unreal and so in terms of um in terms of writing process um and for this novel like I kind of it's it's such a well done novel I get the feeling you really sweated over all the details in this book um tell 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 me a little bit about that process and, and where it started, um, how long ago and, and the ups and downs until now? So it started shamefully long ago, like probably, <laughs> you know, <laughs> six, six or seven years ago. Um, and I, I, I know I should have my story straight by now because I've had a long time to get this straight, but when people ask me where I got the idea, I honestly, all I can do is be honest and say, I don't know, and they just arrived. Norman and Sadie, the two main characters, literally 
arrived in my head. You know, I've heard other authors say that, but it's it is was actually true. They have arrived in my head and they were there and they've never changed since that first day. And they were fully for and I never had to do any of the, you know, the theory of developing you know, for, in my writing process, it was all going on in my head, of course, but I never had to do any, oh, you know, write out your character, you know, you dissect your character, write out what they eat for breakfast, right, or, you know, what they would do in this situation. I never, ever had to think twice about those characters, which is how I knew, I think, that I was going to be able to get to the end of this because mm. I so invested in them, as they say, but I was so close to them. And I, I do, I mean, anyone who has not even necessarily written a book, but who's written anything, short fiction or whatever, you know, the characters really do become real for you. And these guys, everyone in that book is so totally real to me. I think I have gone a little bit bonkers. But um, so it took it took a long time. I'll say it, it took a long time to get to the end. It the story was obviously the details weren't there instantly, but the story was in my head. And what I wanted to do was, I mean, I'm a I'm a real comedy fan, and all the old style comedians, the same fa- the same um, comedians that Norman in the book loves. It's not a coincidence; they're the ones that I love and I grew up with, and you know, things like that. But um, I wanted, I just, I had this thought in my head about this, some little kid. I don't think it's, no, he did, he did always start off as a kid, actually. I was going to say, of someone who was so passionate about something, and in this case being comedy, who was such a comedy fan, just loved it to bits and, you know, lived, eat, eat and breathed it, and then wanted to do it so badly. But imagine what it would be like if you were just rubbish at it. I mean, how heartbreaking that would be and what a conflict that would be. And so that was the basis of the, I, I wanted to, this is so, so cruel, isn't it? I wanted to make this poor little boy be so passionate about this thing, but be completely rubbish at it. And um, that was where the, that was where, that was sort of the, I guess, you know, when you ask yourself the what if question, I guess that was the what if question. And, um, and it's also not a spoiler for anyone who's, yet to read it, which is everyone, but um, and um, it's not a spoiler to say, you know, it, it opens with with the death of his friend. And I also wanted to, that was really interesting to me, that was kind of another, not light bulb, but another what if question. I thought, wow, what if the worst thing that ever happened to you actually led you to the best time of your life? And so that was, that was, that were the sort of two kind of questions that from where everything started. And then so I wrote, 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 wrote a lot of it and then I had a couple of years where I did absolutely nothing because um, various things. I, my father passed away and, you know, you kind of lose your your, your funny bone sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and so I kind of, and, of course, I made every excuse under the sun and it was still there and I, ne- I always was going to plug away at it but I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not so obsessed with it anymore. And then... And then I did become obsessed with it again and I just I sort of whipped through it at the end and I took another couple of, and I did do this course with um, Curtis Brown Creative, which is a, a novel writing course and they're a very, for anyone who's not heard of them, they're an agency, uh, a literary agency in London, but they've also developed this creative school to run alongside them and they were the first, I think maybe a couple of others, maybe like, Favour does it now as well, but they were the first literary agency to um, 
so instead of sitting there and waiting for people, waiting for their talent, as they call it, to come to them and having to go through, you know, 50 million submissions every week, they decided they wanted to nurture talent and they wanted to go out and find the talent themselves and then nurture it and give them, you know, lift them up. And it's been really amazing because not, I mean, the people that do their cause, it's, they're quite well known now. I did the first one or the first online one. So I was very excited to get onto it because it was through submission and you had to submit your first three chapters and et cetera. But um, so it was, that was where I sort of learned to critique other people's work and have my work critiqued. And that changed a lot of things for me and it sort of made me, made me get a little bit more serious about things and so so I wrote and then the uh, I while I, I went over to I was because I lived back and forwards to the UK and once when I was over there I went into that agency um, where I'd done that the course and um, I met my now agent Sue at a little um, it was for people who had done a course and you got to meet some agents and it was you know they weren't promising you anything or they you didn't even have their books it was like a little cocktail party and, and things like that and We'd had a, a pitch thing previously in this thing. We, we pitched our novels to three or four of the agents and it was just a pretend thing. They said, this is not happening for real. This is just, I don't know. But, um, and I said to her, when I was sidled up to her with a glass of champagne, and I said, oh, would you mind? She said, oh, it sounds, because she heard the pitch and she said, oh, yeah, it sounded adorable. And I said, oh, so can I pitch to you when, if and when I finish it? She goes, yes, I'd love you to. And by then I was nowhere near finishing there was you know there was a long way to go I think I, like I was probably only about three quarters of the way through but she was I mean I should have prefaced that with the fact that she was my dream agent I had researched her beforehand and mm. she was the one that I really wanted and because that's what's very important for anyone who's writing book is to find the agent who champions you and who loves your thing you know all the ones who don't love you doesn't mean that, you know, there's something wrong with your work. It just means you're not the right fit. But I, it, on the surface, it kind of looks like, and I have been, I, I've had a bit of a dream run because I submitted to, to Sue. When I was finished, I submitted to Sue and she was the only agent that I submitted to because she was the one I wanted. And I thought, well, I'll cross the other bridges when, when I come to them. I submitted at the worst time in the world and they tell you never to submit. I thought I had all my dates right. Um, you never can submit before the London Book Fair because agents are just flat out and they can't do anything. And I knew the London Book Fair was, you know, whenever it was. And I submitted and I got this and I knew I was a month ahead of it and I was all fine, I did it. And she sent me back this email almost, you know, it was back a day later and she said, I've started to, re I absolutely love it, but we're so flat out because the London Book Fair's this week and I'd, I didn't realise they changed the date of the London Book so I sent it at the complete wrong time. But anyway, that's a long and convoluted story. But anyway, so within a couple of days she finished it and she offered me representation. So I have, I've, I've never had the, the knockback of, you know, five different or 25 different agents telling me they didn't, you know, I wasn't suitable for them. So I, I have had, I, I was extremely lucky with that and I feel so lucky because she's absolutely amazing. Um, and then I worked with her for, she's quite well known for, um, which many agents don't do, but she's quite well known for working editorially with her, with mm. the authors she takes so, it, so it's sort of pretty top-notch when it gets submitted to publishers, to editors. And so I worked with her for about, I think, 
about three months because she sent through some notes and she wanted me to get rid of her character. And she was so right. Like I kind of knew. She said I had two characters and she said, well, you've got to get rid of And I won't tell you who it was, even though you've read the book, but I won't, I won't ruin it for her. But she said, um, she said, you need to get rid of this character. And I angsted and angsted so much. I mean, it was, it was really the major, the, the only major change. There was little bits of, you know, suggestions and stuff, but that was the one. And it was a huge change to write this person out. And I angsted over it for weeks and weeks and weeks and literally lost sleep because I'd promised myself that if I ever got an agent, I was going to be the easiest person to work with and people were going to walk around the office and go, wow, that Julietta Henderson, she's so easy to work with. She's just, you know, she's a breeze. <laughs> so I'd always been really, really determined I wasn't going to be precious about anything, but I'd hit the first stumbling block immediately. Anyway, I angsted about it so much and I eventually rang her and I said, Sue, I, 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 I can't get rid of this character. And she's like, oh, no, that's okay. She said, but just one of the two. What about the other guy? And I was like, and the minute she said that, I was like, oh, yeah, and I got rid of another guy and didn't miss him at all. And this other guy is still in there and very happily stealing the show from everyone. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and... So, yeah, so within a couple of months, yeah, I think it was about three months, and then Sue put it out to submission in the UK and I was very lucky to um, secure my deal and I was extremely happy. Unreal. So an an overnight success in six or so years. (laughs) Well, yeah. And, and, you know, I think, and I've said this to several people, it really, I can't deny that I've had a dream run and it, it is because, you know, there's so many heartbreaking stories out there. How people slog away and try me, and the, all. My, I'll have to be honest. My only goal. I always look like sort of just in front of me. I I don't really look long term. I always just look in front of me. And my only goal after I finished that book was to get an agent. And then when I got an agent, I was like, oh, okay, now what's my oh, next goal? And that was yeah, yeah. It was pretty much like that. But it was you know, and I had a dream run with with getting my agent, and I had a dream run with getting my publishing deal. But what I do say is that, you know, that old saying is um, the harder you, the harder you work, the luckier you get or something Mm. like that. But I'm sure I read everything I could about submitting to agents, you know, down to the, the font size and the type, you know, the spacing. And I, I just made it easy for people to say yes to me. I think like I didn't put any barriers in the way I listened to what experts told me. I, presented it well and did my thing and so I was very yes I was it it has been a dream for me but I worked hard to make it easier for the dream to happen if you know what I mean I do 100% and also I imagine that the copywriting um, expertise in there and having worked with creative agencies and stuff before um, I should say I'm a copywriter as well by day and um, you know you submit something that's sloppy or not well put together and it just gets thrown back in your face straight away so I imagine that that experience is something that really helped you go through that process too. Absolutely it is uh, you know writing getting paid to write is a big incentive to write well because otherwise you don't get paid again. So, you know, copywriting, as you say. But I also worked, what I think really helped me was, um, and I still do, is I worked as an editor, as in not as in a book editor, but as in an editor for copywriting. And I became, you know, quite ruthless because you can see, you know, it's, 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 it's 
as if you're a writer, it's quite easy to edit someone else's work because if the work's done and you can go, yeah, but it would look better without that. So, you know, editors actually have the easy job. But it made me um, not, it made me so less precious about my work and about my writing. And I also think, and I won't say copywriting because I don't do advertising copywriting or anything like that, but I do, you know, a, a lot of content you know everything's content I'm, I'm not really a fan of that word but everything's content but I do a lot of a lot of writing that I would call and and I don't mean this disparagingly in any way but it's disposable writing as in you know how people you know especially if it's online we're such gluttons for information yeah. we scan we just headings we whatever and so I think getting in that mindset and you know and I had to do you know I had to write sometimes and you would have this experience as well you know you have to write sort of three four thousand words a day sometimes and you just have to get it out there and it has to be good and you have to be ruthless and you have to get your point across and I think that was such a good training ground like being not scared to dump they're only words you've got more inside your head you know like mm. so it, I think that makes you yeah I think it made me a lot um a lot more open to just dumping something if it wasn't working and just going, it's not working, stop flogging a dead horse, you know, it's not working, mm. move on, start again. Mm. Wow, that's the that's the joy of writing. You can do anything, especially in fiction. The day I worked that out was it was only fairly recently. It was, it was such a revelation. I was like, oh, my God, I can, it's fiction. I'm making it up. I can make them do whatever I want them to. <laughs> like, oh, we're stuck <laughs> in a corner build a bridge and get them we can do whatever we like it's amazing it's very freeing <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you talk about um being able to throw things out because uh, one thing i definitely noticed about the book is like first chapter in and all of a sudden it's compelling from the first first kind of couple of pages mm-hmm. and um when you talk about editing I, um I, there's a, um, an editor i worked with at one point and nearly always he'd just cross out the first paragraph of what you'd written and go, this is great. The story's great. You know, just, just chop out that first waffle bit at the start and you're yep. jumping in and this is what happens with yours. You jump straight in. And so I, you know, it's it definitely that editing experience looks like it's, it's really paid off. And, and you said, um, you know, you got to critique other people's work in the Curtis Brown workshop. What did that kind of experience teach you in terms of critiquing fiction work as opposed to critiquing the or editing the nonfiction stuff? Um, I think that it makes you, uh, it's definitely, you've got to look at it much more critically, you know, because mm. that's, someone's, that's someone's heart and soul. And that's, and it's also, it's not, um, I think if you're, editing something that's you know maybe somebody's website or it's a travel story or something like that you're dealing with facts and so you're you're more conscious of making sure everything you know all the ducks are in a row and everything's correct and no one's going to come and jump on you and go well that's not true and you know having a coherent sort of thought pattern all the way through but if you're critiquing fiction I mean it was terrifying because you don't want to hurt people's feelings and you don't want, you know, and, and it wasn't that sort of environment like you, you know, it, it was, you didn't have to be, um, you know, complimentary, but you weren't, you couldn't be disparaging, you know, it was supposed to be a positive environment, you know, obviously, otherwise it's not helpful. And I learned so much, I think, because that sort of, that particular course, I mean, I've never done a creative writing course. I don't, 
I don't I don't know how they work like when someone when a course tries to teach you how to write whereas this workshoppy sort of thing and what it was it was a long it was a three-month course I think they're teaching you more oh, I don't even know the intangibles about writing it you know the 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 why's the the the, the it factor you know the the why is it why is this good why is it so good why is her book why is everyone in the group going, oh, yeah, you did, and you sit there and go, oh, yeah, look, everyone's saying the same thing. Why is that? And it shows you, I think, what um, read it because we're all readers as well, and I think it shows you how readers think apart from yourself because you really only know how you think. And I think that was very valuable to me, not just because no one else had ever read my work. And, of course, it was very nice because I was getting good feedback, which was lovely. But then someone would point something out and no one else would agree with them. And then I remember one day someone, I I have no idea what it was now, and the tutor came in behind and sent me a private message or something and said, oh, you know, you don't have to take everyone's, um," you know, because I was going, oh, thank you very much. That sounds yeah, you're right, that sounds really interesting. And he came in from behind and says, you know that when people give you opinions, you don't take everyone's on board. It's just to be there. You don't have to please everyone. And he was kind of telling me that he didn't agree with what she said. But I thought it's so it's so valuable to know what any anyone thinks. You know, bad reviews are I, just as, you know, everyone's only a person. And I think, you know, I've, I've gotten, I, I stay off good reads and things like that. But because it's my first novel and there are some reviews up there, it's quite nice for me to go and have a look. I'll go and have a look once every, you know, two weeks or so. But in a way I'm looking forward to the, like a really rubbish review because I just want to, I think, I think you have to realise that you can't please everyone all the time. That's some, And I think that's that, back to your original question, I think that's something that I really learned from that was to take criticism, um, you know, kind criticism, and realise that, not everyone's going to like, as in life, not everyone's going to like you. Um, not everyone's going to like your book. It's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. You know, I would love to, oh, I was saying this to a friend the other day, I would love to, because she, she said, oh, book a prize next year, here you come. And I said, I don't think I'm writing to the book a prize. Like I would love to, I would love to think I've got a literary genius like Shuggy Bain in me. <laughs> I'm not sure I could stay that, that long, but I'd love to think that. But at the end of the day, I think I'm always going to be, a, I think reading is entertainment. I think it's really, you know, it's very, it's a serious business and literary, you know, liter, liter, literature, literary reading is is a serious business, but I also think it's entertainment and I think that's my little thing that I'm writing towards. I'm probably not writing towards a Booker Prize. I'm writing towards it sounds a bit trite, but making people happy and whether that's making them cry or whatever, but giving them some enjoyment out of out of reading a book because there's just nothing better than reading a book as far as I'm concerned, even a bad book. I love it. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, and the thing about that is too is if you're entertaining someone and you're sneaking in a few messages and things here and there, yeah. it's almost like they fly under the radar but they're still going in. And um, yeah. there's nothing more compelling than an entertaining book that you just want to keep keep turning and get to the end and it means you you get across everything that you wanted to say if you're holding that attention and so I don't think there's anything wrong with with saying well I write to entertain it's I think that's admirable and particularly like I think with the year that everybody's had this year around the world mm-hmm. it, a little bit of entertainment and a little bit of light-hearted um, 
a look at how you can maintain that hope in a despairing time and how you can look to try and find purpose is it's just a really important thing for people to have so just because it's entertaining doesn't mean it doesn't have value yeah no i totally agree and i think you know i think there's probably going to be i hope there are quite i because the uplit genre is it's not massive i get well it depends on what you you could sort of retroactively put a lot of books in that genre i guess but I think over the next few years, people are going to be looking like it's, you know, the old question, oh, if you're writing a book, a contemporary book, like my, the book two that I'm writing now, I've actually deliberately, I was just like, no way, it's not going to be anywhere around 2020 because I don't want to deal with COVID. <laughs> it's way back there. It's going to be back in 2010. But, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of books out there that people, people, people are looking to be, they're looking to be you know, have a smile on their face after. I don't think no one's, anyone's going to want to be reminded about 2020 for quite a while yet. And For sure. Yeah. And I think it's, I think there was a study that came out and said something like during tough times, people turned to comedy and during, um, during really great times, actually, funnily enough, horror and crime and things see an upswing because they're more willing to, to experience that emotion when things are good elsewhere. Um yeah, and so on that, in terms of books and stories that you love and that you would recommend, um, obviously, other than the funny thing about Norman Foreman, um, what would um, if if someone came to you as like, like I just need a good a great read? What like what are some of the first things that you like to recommend to people? So of current times, I cannot. I think just people are sick of me. I can't recommend The Last Migration enough. I don't know if you've read it. It's Charlotte McConaughey no. or McConaughey. It's just the most wonderful book. It's absolutely fantastic. It's it's a it's a climate change book without being a climate change book. Like she it, it you, you're not even really mentioning climate change so you're not getting beaten over the head with it. But it's just this most beautiful story. Um and she's done such a brilliant job and she's such a young she's a young Aussie girl. I think it came out in about maybe October or something like that, but it's brilliant. The Last Migration, it's called. That is absolutely fabulous. Um, I've also recently read, which is for, you know, and I think if you want something to, that's not necessarily a cheery book. In fact, it's not cheery at all. It's not depressing. It's very thought-provoking and it's, I wouldn't even call it heavy. It's just really, it's just like what you leave it going, wow, you know, it's amazing. How did she write that? You know, and there's certain books in my life there's been, Probably, I think that one might jump onto the shelf, but there's been one book in my life that I wish I'd written and that was, um, and I nearly didn't read it because of the title and that's The Shadow of the Wind. Have you read that one? Oh, that's, I um, love that. So Patrick, Patrick Rothfuss? No, no, it's The Shadow oh. of the Wind. Um, no, Carlos. Oh, no, Ru, um, Carlos Ruiz, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm yes, thinking the name of the wind, which is Pat, Patrick Rothfuss, but oh. Carlos Ruiz, which is set in um, Barcelona. Barcelona. And that, and I nearly didn't read it because I thought, oh, it sounds a bit like a Mills and Boone, but as you would know, that turns out to be the name of the book. And I remember reading that and I must read it again because I've only ever read it the once and I've just never been able to, um, just been like, my God, how, how do you write that? Like I couldn't write that book. I don't, well, I don't think anyone could except for him. So that is, that is just an all-time class. It's amazing, isn't it? And it's, it's a true book nerds book like it's there's this is like this library and it's just i reckon people who are really into books and reading and writing it's just right up their alley so anyone who's listening probably are absolute geeks get and if you haven't haven't read it get onto it 
it's, it's such a stunning book. Um, but sort of other, you know, I read one of my main, probably the person that made me want to write books was Nick Hornby, who I absolutely love, and um, and also Tony Parsons and David Nichols. I, I've got a bit of a thing for middle-aged white European <laughs> men. English men, they're all English. It's quite funny. When I realised they were sort of my top three, I'm like, oh, my God, that's a bit strange. But um, so, yeah, like Nick Hornby is my, or I've read everything he's ever written and sort of thing and and absolutely love everything he does. But Tony Parsons as well. And um, and but I, I do read widely, but I, I love authors that, I love Roddy Doyle. Um, I've got his latest one, which is called Love, and I haven't delved into that yet because it's all dialogue. And I thought I bought it specifically because dialogue scares me a bit in in, in my writing. And I'm like, oh, this book is. And I love Roddy Doyle because he's so dry and so you know he's he's got such a he's got such a sharp insight into the little things of life. And this whole book, I don't know if have you heard of Love, his latest no, one. No, it's completely set. As I say, I haven't read it. I've got it there, but. Um, it's completely dialogue. The whole book is dialogue. There's nothing in between. And it's just these two old guys that, or maybe they're not even old, two guys who meet in a pub and it's just their, you know, the old Irish pub. So I'm quite looking forward to reading that. But but other things that I've read of his, you know, Paddy Doyle and stuff, he's just such a, he's so insightful. And, I mean, I, I am very, because very, I lived in the UK for a long time and I, I've got family over there and I think I am English, you know, I've got the pale skin for it. No one believes I'm an Aussie. But I, I really love Irish writers like Anne Enright um, and and I love Marion Keys. Um, mm. I love her because she's, you know, she's the chick lit or whatever you want to call her, but she's very, you know, she's, I, I do, like it's it's almost like a cliche to go, oh, I love Marion Keys, but it's, she's a very good writer because she just drags you along with her and that's what I like. Mm. And funnily enough, well, I, I um, read The Break recently and just thought that was such a gorgeous book and loved it. So maybe I do like Chiclet and I didn't even know. Well, I don't know. if I mean, people call her Chiclet, but I don't I don't know if she calls herself, they call her that. I mean, that's that's probably uplit as well, I guess. Like, yeah, I don't I, know. I but she's a master of of character and and things like that, and she's just, she writes such long books though, and it's just sometimes I can't I haven't read her latest one, which has been her bestseller, um, but I haven't been able to get into it. I tried during lockdown. I lent it to about four different people, and it's come back all like this, and I've never read a page of it yet because it's 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 quite daunting to me. I'm not mm. like thick books kind of. I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't commit to it. <laughs> so I'm the, I'm, but, um, I'm absolutely same. I've, I've got the luminaries kind of sitting there, which is, um, I think maybe it won the Booker Prize, um, but it's huge. It's something like 900 pages, and I just kind of keep looking at it, going, I'm not ready for it. <laughs> That's definitely been on my must read list. Well, I don't own it. But it must. It's been on my must read list for years and years and years. But I just can't. I. I don't know. So, you know, you have to be in the mood for some books. And mm. like Tim Winton was probably my, you know, in terms of writing craft, I mean, you, as if you can beat Tim Winton, but I love his books because they're, they're um, I find them, they're, they're, they're so beautifully written, but they're really easy read, written, easy to read. They're not mm. sort of overall, like, you know, some really beautiful literary books, you're just like, oh, yeah, but you've got to wade through the beautiful writing to get to the to, get to the story that some poor authors slaved over for 15 years. But but Tim Winton manages to do um, both, I think. Like he, 
his writing is just, and it looks like he just got out of bed and just thought those things up. He, I'm sure so much effort goes into it, but he's just so effortlessly amazing. I, mm. I love his books because, and, and they just take you on the story. And going back to Nick Hornby, um, you said you've read everything of his. If I haven't read any Nick Hornby, I've obviously heard of him. If yep. I have to start with one book, like where, where do I start? Oh, listen, you'd probably start with, uh, being a boy, you'd probably start with High Fidelity and that's been made into a, that's been made into two TV series. Like originally it was um, a TV series, I don't know, years and years ago, but now it's recently been made with Zoe Kravitz, Lenny Kravitz' daughter. And okay. she's, they, she, so they've switched genders of like the, the main character in his book is a, is a man called Rob. And um, so if you're a music lover and um, a sort of culture, contemporary culture lover, High Fidelity is amazing. But I have to say the my two favourites of his are A Long Way Down, which I absolutely love because I just love the, the premise of that. You're just like, damn, why didn't I think of that? Because the premise is, um, and this is not giving anything away, the premise is it's New Year's Eve, some guy has had enough, his life is trash he's come up to the top of you know some tall building in London to jump off basically which sounds a bit grim but but when he gets there there's three other people there and they've all got the same idea and so (laughs) (laughs) it goes from there and I absolutely love that and then he's such a blokey bloke Nick Hornby and he writes but he writes women really well he's written another one called uh, Juliet Naked and that's written um from the viewpoint of a woman and Another one. See, I'm telling you them all because I love them. But I would start with, but probably, do you know what? No, the one I would start with would be How to Be Good. That's how absolutely to good. How to Be Good. And it's like, I don't know, they're so simple. They're, and they're small. He's, he writes very short books. And so you'll just whip through them. And, um, but yeah, I think, I think you, as, as a bloke, he's such a blokey, he's such a blokey book. Um, writer like men would love his book men do love his books but also women do because he's not um he's in and actually his latest one which i've only just read and i've totally forgotten what it's called oh there it is it's called just like you and he's written um again from the viewpoint of a woman but i mean it's look his latest one's not my favorite of his but it's still very good (laughs) so don't start with that Sounds like you're a, you're a massive fan, and so um, in terms of um, in terms of what's next for you. So obviously, this book, um, your your debut in, in um, has come out like right now. It's available, I imagine, pretty much everywhere in Australia, at least for those who are listening in the UK and the United States. I believe it's April. Is that correct? yeah yeah? Um, and so. And you you mentioned earlier you're already on to book two. Um, oh, yes, yeah. So you're well, just going str- like all all kind of guns blazing and and jumping straight into another one, or are you going to try and bask in the glory of of your debut and <laughs> sit back for a little bit and enjoy it? I don't know. How, is there going to be glory? I'm not sure. Um, no, I'm definitely no because I'm very also. Also, there's a big motivation because I got a two-book deal, so I don't actually sure. have a choice. You have to. <laughs> and I have to say it's very different writing to a contract than it is to just being airy-fairy going, oh, I'm writing a book. Mm, suddenly you're writing a book where you've got a contract to write a book. But, um, no, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, I wish I was further along, but just with COVID and everything, you know, everyone had that same issue about being 
brain dead during COVID. And I've had, you know, it's a perfect thing for a writer. You know, my life, to be honest, it, it did change. But here in Melbourne, you know, it was pretty grim. But, um, you know, mentally it was very hard on the writing process, really. It was much easier on the Netflix watching process. But um, <laughs> so I'm not as far advanced as I wanted to be because I wanted to be, I wanted to have my first draft finished by the time my first draft of my book two will be finished by the time um, Norman Foreman's released in the UK, fingers crossed. Um, and to be honest, there's already a book three that's got, that's about a third of the way through as well because I couldn't decide on, so I was doing them both and then I was like, oh, God, stop it. It's just another, it's just another method of procrastination, isn't it? I do, I do exactly the same thing. Oh, good. Oh, so good to hear. I love hearing that other, or I read this, um, what's her name? Because I had this terrible, with this, with the first draft of or what I'm working on now, book two, I, because people have started, of course, now that the, the other book's out, the first book's out, you know, they'll ask you about your writing process. And I'm like, mm, I don't know, because, you know, taking, taking your entire life to write one book, you don't really have a process. <laughs> you just, it just happens. Whereas my writing process now, what I've discovered, I'm just like, I just need to, I need that, those magic numbers on the page. I just need to have, you know, a hundred thousand words, which this is what I've discovered over the last six months. And I do have 110,000 words, but they're certainly not in any kind of structure, but I was just going in and I was just writing scenes. I was just writing scenes, scenes everywhere. And so I have I have 100,000 words worth of random scenes. And I thought, oh, I've got to get some structure in. And yes, what is my writing process? I don't know. <laughs> Splattergun. But then I was listening to this interview with Elizabeth Strout, Strout that wrote um, Olive Kitteridge. I don't know if you've won the Pulitzer Prize or she's won. So anyway, it's a brilliant book. But um, I was listening to an interview and it was so wonderful because that's exactly what she does. And and I was so I was so heartened by that. I was literally as flat as a pancake. I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to get this book done. I've just got all this random stuff and nothing's coming together. And, and what kind of idiot writes like this? And oh my gosh. And and then yeah, then she does exactly the same. So um, yeah, so it's always good to hear that other authors have you have that same random approach. Yeah, I know uh, there's a really great Australian writer, uh, Favel Parrot, who um, she writes yes. the same. She writes different different scenes everywhere. And I love the quote Ooh. from Neil, Neil Gaiman that says, um, your second draft is making it look like you meant it all along. And I just think that that's a, <laughs> oh, wonderful, like that. you know, yeah. a wonderful way. It's like the first draft is always a mess. It just always is. Yeah. And so yeah. that's that's the whole um, beauty of editing and not being, not actually showing anyone until it's something worth, yeah. worth reading. And of course, your first draft that you send to your agent or someone is never really your first draft. I'm on to already about. I've got. I think I've got six drafts. You know, they're all you know one A or one B or something like that. So your first draft that you show someone is totally different to your own first draft. There's a guy mm. called um, Will Dean who I haven't read. He writes um, thrillers. I think his latest one's called The Last Thing to Burn, and I can't remember what his first one was, but it was a big hit. He's a British guy. He lives in. Um, he calls himself the forest author. He lives in the middle of this forest in um, outside Stockholm or somewhere. He's got a Swedish wife and he lives in this forest and writes and he's got this funny little blog and um, a, it's not really a podcast. He just puts up writing tips. Anyway, he, um, and, and I've read extracts, but I haven't read his books as yet, but he, he they, they look like they'll be great and they've had really great reviews. And he writes his first drafts in a month. 
Like he just goes oh, wow. and sits in his cabin, just writes in a month. But then as he says, you know, it's just that's and then you go back and start. But he's he's got that on the page. He's got those words on the page. And, you know, interestingly, that's what I've discovered that I need. I need to have this. I'm just constantly looking at my word count going, oh, 110,000, yay, you know. It's it's nonsense, but it's a starting point. It's you're not starting from zero anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, it's the, the proverbial the proverbial lump of clay you now have to make into a, a statue or something like that. Um, and so it sounds like we're going to have hopefully um, be hearing a bit from you in the next few years. Um, if somebody. Yeah, if somebody, if people want to listening, want to um, follow um, what you're doing, what's the best place to to um, I, I guess get in touch or or follow on social media or any of that that stuff. Yeah, social media. I'm on Julieta Henderson author, and I'm on Twitter as Julieta Julia one. And um, I don't really have a Facebook page. I'm not. I'm not a great social media person, but I'm. I'm, you know, on Instagram and Twitter because that's where the bookie people are. Um, and I have a website and I will be doing a monthly newsletter coming up soon, probably in the new year, uh, not the new year, February, we're using the new year <laughs> in the February now. So, um, yeah, so I'm hoping to be able to, um, I, I'm really looking forward to getting some feedback. So I'm hoping that I've, I've got enough avenues there that I will get some feedback from people because I genuinely want to, I mean, it's so, it's so exciting. You would know. It's so exciting to think that, you know, people, strangers are picking up your book, you know, people who've read it now. I mean, strangers have read my book, bloggers and things like that, but it's kind of different that strangers are going to, you know, outlay some hard cash and, and you know, you have the confidence in you to, you know, that it was worthwhile. And I'm hoping that it is worthwhile for people. It's a big responsibility. <laughs> yeah, well, it? it is. I mean, attention's such a scarce resource these days between phones and screens and yeah. kids and jobs yeah. and, you know, everything that else yeah. is going on. So, but I have to say it is absolutely worth the read. So those listening, please oh, go out. Um, grab the funny thing about Norman Foreman. It is such a delightful read. So thank you so much for your time, Julieta, and thank you so much for writing the book. Oh, thank you, Tim, and thanks for supporting me. And um, it's I'm really looking forward to seeing what's happening. And I love your podcast, by the way. I've been doing a lot of listening, a lot of back listening of it. So it's really good. Thank you. Uh, very, thank you very so honoured to be on it. Thank you. Unreal. Well, thank you, Julieta, and um, I hope to catch up with you in, in real life sometime soon. Hi, this is Tim. I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening. Also, a massive thanks to Johnny Hawken for the intro and outro music, Sarah Bervenich for the podcast artwork, and the authors and publishers who make this show possible. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice, give us a shout-out on social media, or leave a review on iTunes. If you'd like to reach out to me personally to say hi, you'll find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Tim underscore Hawken. That's at T-I-N underscore H-A-W-K-E-N. Or you can even head to timhawken.com and get a free copy of the first book in my Hellbound trilogy by signing up to my newsletter. For a roundup of all the episodes and recommendations, you can also head to timhawken.com forward slash genre wars. Thanks again for listening and happy reading.
Why, why'd you have to go? Please stay. Frightened, need some comfort.、Here. 